Welcome, everyone, to episode 49 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is Dr. Kevin Gilmartin. Now, Kevin was a retired Tucson police officer who became a clinician and wrote a book called The Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. And this book was recommended to me by a good friend. And I said, I, why are you recommending this? I'm, I'm not a cop. I'm, I'm a firefighter. And I was told, look, all you got to do is replace cop, police officer, law enforcement with firefighter, and you'll be good to go. It's a great read. Check it out. And I took her up on it. And sure enough, it was a great read. It was, it was actually a really good book, and that's, it is so true. Replace those, those words with firefighter, and it's really the same kind of stuff for the most part. So I brought Dr. Gilmartin on this episode to kind of discuss this book and also things that are going on in the world today. So without further ado, let's tag him in. All right, welcome everyone to this week's episode of the 25 Live. My special guest this week is Dr. Kevin Gilmartin. Uh, good morning to you. Good afternoon to me, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jim. Hope you are too. I am. And thanks so much for joining me. I know we tried to do this earlier on and I got, you know, a couple of weeks ago and I got ordered in for overtime and then, you know, so we had to postpone it, but I'm glad we were able to pick things up today. Well, I am too. These are, these are really challenging times for public safety people. And I, I just hope that they, we can say something today that will be helpful to them. Absolutely. So, the way that you kind of came on my radar is my friend Allison. Uh, I was just venting to her about things, and she ended up going, "You need to read a book." And I said, "Okay, <laughs> I've read I've read a few books in my lifetime. What book are you talking about?" And it was your book. In fact, it was the Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. And, oh. and I kind of was like, uh, "I'm not a cop. Though. I'm a firefighter, paramedic." And she said look, it's, it's everything that you need to know. It's, it's describing everything you're saying. All you have to do when you read it is replace the word pol police officer or law enforcement with firefighter. And mm -hmm. I said, okay, I could try that. And sure enough, I ended up picking up the book and I was able to do that. And I almost in a way at times thought like, this is an autobiography, like <laughs> the stuff that's going on, the stuff that you're saying, how you're saying it. I mean, it, it spoke to me. It was, it was the truth of, of the job in itself. Well, you know, my practice has been exclusively first responders, public safety personnel. And this book came about, it was kind of funny. I, I was working in, in law enforcement at the time before I retired as a cop. And one of my sergeants said, you need to write a book about the stuff you talk about at the academy. I said, I don't need to write a book. He said, you need to write a book because when you die, all this stuff's going to die with you. I said, that's a cheery thought. He said, but you know, you have some information here based on your years of working with cops and firefighters that could be helpful. And that was our goal in putting the book together, just to, to take some basic concepts that are not getting taught and just give them, give them to the personnel so they can make some changes in their life. It's a very simple book, but it, I, I think it's based on legitimate changes biologically and psychologically that all first responders go through. So part of this book is, you know, you talk about when we start our jobs, whether it's EMS, fire, police, that becomes the defining aspect of our lives. Uh, could you kind of just go into that a little bit, if you don't mind? Well... First responders' jobs become the defining 
part of their life by default because the job is so terribly intense. When people go into their work mode as a firefighter, as a police officer, as a dispatcher or EMS person, when they go into that job, biologically, the brain, the whole, the whole physiology goes into a very elevated level of alertness. In the book, we call that hypervigilance. It's a physiological state brought on by the, the parasympathetic autonomic nervous system. I'm sorry, the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. It's adrenaline. And it, you have to really have that to do your job well. Because when you're a first responder, you, you don't have hours to contemplate what you're going to do. You have fractions of a second. And you have to think on your feet quickly. And when the brain goes into this elevated level of alertness, the person functions in the work mode. But it's like a roller coaster or a pendulum. When they get off duty, it, they tend to collapse into this exhausted state where even saying hello is painful. So the things in their life that help define them outside the work role start falling off. They stop taking place because the person comes home exhausted each day from work. And the last thing they want to do when they get off duty is to engage in their hobby. They just kind of collapse, get on social media, watch television, just do nothing. Then a few hours pass, they sleep, and they go back to the work mode again. So what happens after you do this for a few years, the one part of your life that's constantly getting emotional energy is your first responder role. You have golf clubs, but they have dust on them. You have a mountain bike, but it hasn't been ridden in a month and a half. But you go to work every time you're on duty and lots of times for overtime shifts. So four or five years of this and the vast percentage of a person's life is spent in the work role. And that becomes very defining for them. Plus the work role is, it's the type of role that we tend to identify people by. You very rarely say, well, Joe works as a firefighter. You say Joe is a firefighter. He is a cop. And, and that's gratifying, that's, that sense of camaraderie with your other firefighters and your other cops. But the downside of it is it kind of shuffles out of your life the other defining parts of your life. So what takes place in the work role is what actually defines your life. And one of the biggest aspects of stress is when our life gets out of control. It's very important that we control the things that are central to our life. When you're a first responder, you don't get to control that. People who control your organization control that. So it's very painful psychologically and emotionally for first responders when even simple administrative changes can take place. This is why you'll often hear cops and firefighters say the most stressful part of the job is management. It's not that management is inherently doing a bad job. It's that management is controlling the role that is so terribly central to your life, you don't have any emotional fallback positions. You don't hear the cops saying, well, you know, they're changing our uniform, but that's okay. I'm going fly fishing tomorrow. What you'll hear is a lot of grumbling about the change in the uniform. And then it becomes almost a potentially toxic environment 
at, at the workplace. But it starts with, with commitment. It's, it's terribly high commitment to the job biologically. We spend so much time in the United States talking about stress as a psychological concept. We start talking about it with um, even, even things like post-traumatic stress disorder. We, we talk about those as if they're only psychological concepts, when in reality, they're physiological concepts. Those are biological injuries. But stress is a biological and psychological change, but we have ignored the biological part of it for so long. And that depression after work for the first responders is a biological reaction. It's dropping into the parasympathetic autonomic response, the opposite physiologically of what takes place at work. We conceptualize it in the book as a roller coaster, but you could just as readily conceptualize it as a pendulum where the work mode swings you higher than average while you're doing your duty, and then the pendulum will swing higher than average in the opposite range of the detachment and isolation after work. You kind of talk about in your book, the, the magic chair, and you alluded to it without saying it earlier, but I absolutely see myself jumping in that chair whenever I get off shift to just do nothing. And you know, over the years, that magic chair concept has gotten much, much worse because we've become a society of digital entertainment. There was a time, a generation ago, someone would get off work and just collapse in the magic chair. We call it the magic chair because as soon as your butt hits it by magic, all your blood turns to lead. That's, that's how we labeled it, the magic chair. There was a time, a generation ago, you'd collapse in that chair and just surf through television channels. Now, we don't have to do that to detach. We can pick up our cell phone, get on social media, and look at every posting from everyone we've ever met since conception and, and have feel a need to comment on it or be influenced by it. We, we tend to just detach from social interaction. And that's one of the worst things a first responder can do. First responders have such an intense job. It's well outside the normal range. What you do every day as a first responder is basically provide services in abnormal situations. If, if it was a normal situation, they wouldn't dial 911 because people don't dial 911 for things they can handle. So you're moving into situations every day that other people can't handle. And the intensity of handling those situations when you're engaged in them, you're living in the moment. But afterwards, the exhaustive state is what drops you in that magic chair. And it, it destroys relationships. I, I, I would say, during, in my career as a psychologist, that the majority of public safety relationship terminations that, that, that have come into my office have been because, although they loved each other when they got married and started the relationship, they just didn't know how to share their life with each other. They grew apart one day at a time because the first responders collapsing into this exhausted state each day and they stop doing things as life partners and the relationship dies on the vine. No, I've, and I've kind of seen that even on my side within my department as well. Um, would you mind kind of talking about the, how we see the world as first responders, that the cynicism uh, 
that a lot of times we end up, you know, just how we now think about things. Well, you know, that's also a very basic, one of the first changes first responders go through. Most people have the option of solving a problem by normal thinking. If you picture a question mark, most people walk into a question mark and they have to make a decision. I'm going to the airport later, so how long is it going to probably take me to drive to the airport? They do what I call probability thinking. It, they can make their decisions by making an assessment of what's probably going to happen. And that's normal thinking. First responders do not have the luxury of normal thinking. They, they don't get to do probability thinking. A first responder always has to think worst case scenario. So when you look at a situation, you do possibility thinking. It, it, I used to chuckle at minor car accidents, whether it be vehicle damage, but no injuries, and watch firefighters come up and cut the battery cables on somebody's car if there's a fuel leakage. They just cut the cables and, and watch the motorist just go insane. Those are brand new cables. Why did the firefighter have to cut them? And I said, well, that's just firefighters. They do stuff like that to torment people. You know, the cops don't do stuff like that to you. The firefighters do. And we'd get a laugh out of it. But you knew what it was. It was worst case scenario thinking. The firefighters wanted to minimize the risk. That's why when you go into a building or a cop walks up on a car, every single thought is worst case scenario. It dictates where you stand. It dictates how you approach the person. It dictates who you expose your weapon to. We call it officer safety. Firefighters would, would have their, their, their safety protocols. Uh, I can remember teaching in a fire academy and kind of joking with the, the, the staff of the fire training academy because they had the labels on each wall in the classroom. And I said, is that because you firefighters might get lost in the classroom? Thinking it was funny. And then the instructor says, you get to come down here when we do some training with smoke and having a, a breathing apparatus on where you can't see your hand in front of you and you have to know where you're oriented in the room and in the building and which wall you're against. And firefighters, police officers, EMS personnel, everything is worst case scenario. So you look at everything and you have to think the worst in order to survive. You think the worst and then you have a remedy for it. You do what if thinking. Normal folks can do probability thinking. If a cop did probability thinking, they would say, well, I'm probably not gonna get shot tonight. I, I don't think I need to wear ballistic body armor. I'm probably not going to use my firearm so I could just go to work uh, unarmed tonight. It doesn't work that way. So when you're looking at an event, you always think the worst case scenario. In, in our book, we kind of test this. We, we flash up a word that most people view in a, in a fairly positive light. We flash up the word, the term scout leader, and we ask the first responders to you know, rate it. And it, first, we give the word scout leader, and almost always the word association response is pedophile. And because that's the slice of the world they would have seen, but it's also the thinking pattern of always being ready for worst case scenario. That's why firefighters respond with their turnout gear. So if they need it, they have it there. And that ends up developing a cynical perspective 
towards life in just about everything. Because remember, when you get off duty, you stop doing those other roles. So those other roles in life where you're in the, a, a bass fishing club or you're, you're coaching Little League, where you don't have to think worst case scenario, you're not doing those for the most part anymore. And the first responder is honing their skills at being a worst case scenario thinker. And it makes them better and better professionally, but that cynicism makes them worse in other roles in their life. Yeah. Uh, just, just relate from my wife and me, just the outlook on our lives, you know, between her job and my job, um, it's just a world of difference. I mean, literally we just, uh, she doesn't get a lot of times the way I think, because it is always worst case scenario. Like you were, were talking about the more of the what ifs and the, instead of assuming everything is just going to be peachy. Well, you know, I, um, I live half my life in central Oregon, the other half in Southern Arizona. And when I'm in Oregon, I'll drive across the Cascade Mountains anytime from September to the summer comes about. And in the back of my vehicle, I always have two sleeping bags, a snow shovel, a um, old ski suits, and uh, in a big bag. And my wife says, do we need this junk in the car? It's a perfectly nice day. I said, no, we, we don't need that stuff until we need that stuff. And if your car slides off the road and it's going to be 12 degrees tonight, you're going to wish you had that stuff. Well, I doubt that's going to happen. I said, well, I hope it never happens. I don't carry a spare tire because I want to have a flat tire. I carry a spare tire so I'm ready if I have a flat tire. And the world that the first responder lives in that type of logic is 100% accurate. And unless we have other relationships in our life where we realize you can have trusting, open relationships, but those are the ones that drop off after work. Firefighters tend to hang out with firefighters. Cops tend to hang out with cops. So that type of thinking becomes almost universal and constant in their life. And, and the camaraderie of first responders, which is such a blessing, in some ways becomes a curse because it's the only filter and the only lens which we see life through. No, that's that's perfect. That that makes sense to me for sure. Now, something else that made sense in, in your book, and uh, two kind of small curse words. I mean, uh, you might get uh, spanked by your mother for saying this stuff, but. Uh, not as well, hard as if you said the other words, but uh, yeah, the, the words I was referring to. <laughs> that's how yeah. we measure cynicism. I, I always ask people, are you cynical? Oh, I don't know if I am or not. I say, okay, here's how we determine if you're cynical. Just take the square root of the number of times each day that you say bullshit. Every time you say bullshit. And it, pretty soon it becomes a shortcut to thinking. Anything we disagree with. It's just, that's just bullshit. That's just total bullshit. And we, we just label, we give it that label and then we just put it on the shelf. We're done with it. And as we spend more time as a first responder, it's interesting because more and more of the world becomes total bullshit to us. Did you read that memo from the chief? I don't read that bullshit. And it just stops the discussion. And, and that's the reaction of cynicism, which is actually a, a biological response also. It's a, it's a physiologic response. So it's, it's kind of like the, the Vegas response. 
we get the sensation physically when something we disagree with, and we just label it bullshit. Then you ask, well, who's, call, who's causing all this bullshit? And the solution is obvious, it's the assholes. So anything you disagree with becomes bullshit, and anybody you disagree with is an asshole. And the problem is, the more years you're in this field, and the more years you're practicing this distrust in order to survive, the larger of the percentage of the population become assholes. Pretty soon it's just, you know, there's, there's good people and there's bad people. Then there's good people and there's assholes. Then it progresses to, well, you know, either you're, you're a firefighter or you're an asshole. Or the, the more correct way would be either you're, you're a cop or you're an asshole. That would be from, from my perspective. Then the, the pretty soon it would just be only, only the patrol guys. If you're not on patrol, you're, you're, you're an asshole. Then if you're not in, you know, District 3, you're an asshole. And obviously anybody in management's an asshole. That after a while, it's you and your partner. You know, I trust you, but I don't trust the rest of those assholes. Then after 20, 25 years, there's this, unfortunately, people who think everybody in the world is an asshole and they become socially isolated. And you know, it's, it's, you, know, you see this with first responders because first responders, when they approach retirement, are always looking for the asshole-free environment. They always want to finish their, their career with their agency then move someplace. Is, is that, I was going to say, is that why you're in Oregon? Yeah, kind of. There's no assholes in Oregon. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> my, my, no, there was just plenty of them, trust me. But my first encounter in Oregon was with a police officer that I, that I met up here on, on a joint project. And I really liked Oregon. And we came up to visit. And uh, he, he and his family came down to Arizona and visited. Well, we both went through our respective careers and both retired. I moved to Oregon. He moved to Arizona. <laughs> so it's, they're, they're always looking, first responders, to move away from where they have this, this map of total assholishness from the things they've had to deal with for the last quarter century of their work life. And they also, those, those communities also have multiple traumas that they've had to deal with. But... You know, it, it, it's almost universal. I'm, I'm astounded at how universal this, this social isolation after work that causes this is. I found it across Canada and the first responders across Australia, New Zealand, all 50 states. It's a very, very similar syndrome, almost identical syndrome. And it starts with that concept of hypervigilance, the need to go into this elevated alert state in order to get the job done which causes after work that exhausted state where all other roles get put on the back burner. Do you know that cynicism works effectively? Tr trust has no survival value. And cynicism is a distrustful view of the world. As a firefighter, you, you can't make your decisions in tactical situations based on trust. You can trust that other firefighter but you can't trust that things are just going to work out. You have to orchestrate your behavior to maximize your survival in any tactical situation. And that's an element of distrust. With a police officer, clearly officer safety is just cynicism. It's viewing everything through the filter of distrust. That's why the cop stands in a certain place. He watches the hands of the, of the offender. It's, it's, you don't let people reach into drawers when you're standing there. You move them away from what could potentially be a weapon. And 
That's that, that worst case scenario possibility thinking versus the probability thinking that most normal non-first responders can use. He probably doesn't have a gun uh, under his shirt. Well, we're gonna search him because he possibly does. And that type of thinking keeps you alive in the short run, but it had very, very detrimental effects in the long run, not just psychologically. I mean, it will destroy relationships in your life, but what you're doing is when you go into an elevated sense of alertness every day, you're secreting high amounts of adrenal cortical stimulation. That cortisol hits your liver and the liver releases blood glucose. That's, that's the energy the first responder feels while they're doing a job. That elevated alertness, that's, that's the, the blood glucose. But what the pancreas is doing at the same time is it's releasing insulin. And the insulin is grabbing a proportion of that blood glucose and it's infusing it to the cell wall into the fat cells around the abdominal area. It puts that glucose into the fat cell in order to be there as a reserve of energy if the stressful event continues. Well, most people do this once in a while. First responders do it fairly constantly every day for the entire shift. This is one of the reasons that you'll find with law enforcement officers where law enforcement officers continue to infuse glucose into the, into the abdominal area. The firefighter has the advantage when they're on shift that they're in the firehouse and they have some downtime between runs. The alarm goes off, the, the alarm triggers the physiological reaction of alertness, then they make the run. The cop doesn't have the alarm. The cop, the cop becomes the alarm. So when the cop is out on patrol, even if nothing's taking place, it's a slow night, nothing's transpiring, the officer still has to constantly push their brain into that elevated level of alertness, that hypervigilant reaction. So they're infusing glucose for the entire duration of their shift. You know, it, it, I always like to joke and, and say the difference in this area between cops and firefighters is, is why women buy calendars of firefighters. They don't buy calendars of cops with their shirts off. No, nobody wants to see that. Because uh, after about five years, what would you call cops with their shirts off? You know, badges and bellies or something because they've been infused in glucose. We joke about it, you know, donuts, but it's far more serious and has nothing to do with donuts. It has to do with adrenaline. And the cop becomes insulin resistant early in their career. And that leads to high rates of type two diabetes in our older and our retired officers that shorten their lives due to collateral risks of stroke and heart disease. And we, it's so easy to prevent and we don't even talk about it. And that's one of my biggest professional frustrations is how we only conceptualize stress as psychological and we totally ignore the concept of physiological and yet 40% of America's police officers are clinically obese. 83% have sleep impairment. Those are the two biggest indications that the, the job of a first responder has impacted you is incremental weight gain and impairment in sleep. Nice. Well, I can, I can kind of see that firsthand from, from my department as well. Staying on, if you will, staying on the 
police officer side of things, I kind of mentioned to you earlier before we pressed the record button that I had uh, an officer reach out to me and was just upset would probably be the best word um, about what is going on uh, in the world today, you know, with uh, all these um, different protests and everything else, you know, we had uh, uh, an officer in Minnesota, you know, bad officer did something he absolutely shouldn't have done. And now, you know, here in Ohio and everywhere else, these officers are, are being judged. I mean, they were already probably judged before, but they're definitely judged now and now labeled to be the bad guy. And, you know, these guys, a lot of them, the most part of them are, are good people. They're good citizens. They have good families. You know, they contribute to society. But now, you know, it's, uh, you know, this officer was, was worried that, uh, you know, his, his daughter was even like kind of second guessing and wasn't, wasn't proud to say that her dad was, was a police officer. I mean, what would you kind of talk about that? Well, in talking about that, I think there's two areas that, that, that impact me as I'm talking about this. The one area is how to give information to the individual officer so they can handle the stress of what they're facing. The other area is my absolute outrage of what's taking place. Because I, don't, I wouldn't say they're judging officers, they're prejudging officers, and they're ignoring the facts of what has transpired over the past 30 years with law enforcement in the United States. You know, I, I just take the New York City Police Department, which is getting beaten up tremendously by politicians and the media right now. There was a time that New York averaged 2,300 homicides a year, 2,300 homicides per year. They brought in what they called quality of life policing, which is community policing which everyone's railing about wanting today. They brought it in and they honed it. And in just a matter of a few years, they dropped 2,300 homicides to 300 homicides. 2,000 homicides per year did not take place. And they sustained that up until fairly recently, which is about 20 years, which means 40,000 homicides did not take place. 40,000 people did not die. The vast majority of those people were people of color from the inner city. So the New York City Police Department saved basically 40,000 lives by their policing. And their policing was designed to look at small things that were taking place. People urinating in public, defecating in public, people jumping the turnstiles to get on the subway for free. Those were viewed as petty crimes that were previously not addressed. But when the New York City Police Department addressed them, and the reason they addressed them, by the way, was on survey, New Yorkers said those were the issues they wanted the police department to address. It was not the police department's idea to do that. It was in response to public surveys. When they addressed those, they found that of the people jumping the turnstile or the people urinating in public, a significant percentage of them had weapons and had warrants for their arrest because the rapist doesn't pay their toll when they get on the subway to go in to attack somebody. They jump the turnstile. So with om within almost a month, they had a 50% decrease in serious crime in the subways by addressing the small areas. The irony of this is almost every event that the defund police politicians 
are asking to reduce and not make criminal are actually the precursors of major crime. And, and they're, the, they're the telltales of major crime. So as you pull police out of these communities, homicides will escalate. It's, it's absolutely predictable. So from the, just the political part, that enrages me that we have, we have people who are the alleged spokespeople of the minority community, whereas in reality, the ministers and the, and the people who live in public housing and live in impoverished communities, they know the violence is not generated by the police officers. The leading cause of death of an African-American male in the United States is homicide. Over 90% are at the hands of another African-American male. It has nothing to do with the police. They're the only ones trying to reduce it. Now, those homicide rates are clearly indicative of long-term systemic racism. The problem is it's not the cops that are being racist. It's all of our society has to take a look at itself, but it's very convenient to blame the police. So from a political perspective, I, I personally can share that, that officer's uh, emotional upset about that. However, I'm not an active police officer anymore. I don't have to go out every day on the streets and do this job. And those are the, that's the second aspect of what, you know, uh, in response to your question, how do you help that officer? Well, one of the things I, I stress when I speak to cops today is you have to focus your energy in your personal life on things you control. You don't control the insanity that's taking place in many cities in the country today. You don't control the, the, the politicians who are inflaming you know, anarchy. You don't control that. But you have to go out every day and enforce the law. So it's terribly important that when you get off duty, you know self-care. We have to get you having a world that you put your energy into things that you do control, which means let's start limiting the amount of time you spend just watching the news because you don't control what that news is talking about. You don't control that. And the more you invest energy into things you don't control, you see yourself as an emotional victim. Our goal is for you to be an emotional survivor which means you line out a world that has specific, concrete, tangible goals that you do control. For example, let's start looking at controlling just time in your life. We know when you're on duty, other forces control your world. Now you're off duty. Let's set some specific in writing goals for you with the time you're going to accomplish those today. What are they? They can be as simple as, I'm going to start working out again. I'm going to do X number of push-ups. I'm going to run Y distance today, and I'm going to do it every day. Uh, I am going to go out and take my, my son fishing twice this month. And it's placed in writing, and you create a world that you control. And it's terribly important right now that our first responders do that because so many of these events that are impacting their professional life have to be sheltered from impacting their personal life. And as the officer brings it home and just continues to ruminate over what's happening at work, pretty soon the boundary between work and home has disappeared. And the cop is just basically reliving what went on all day. And it's disgraceful what's going on all day in our cities, but our cops have to survive that and they have to take care of themselves. And the, same, the, the events that are attacking the cops today, 
you know, in, in the near future will also be attacking firefighters. It's an anti-authority situation and it, it goes to all government entities, whether it's a 200 year old monument or uh, it's the cop on the corner, it's, it's rage filled anarchy in my opinion. And in order to sustain society, the guardians, the keepers, the first responders have to be able to take care of themselves. Looking at issues like sleep, exercise, uh, for example, I'll just point out something. Type 2 diabetes is an is a epidemic issue in older law enforcement personnel, particularly older first responders of color. They'll have type 2 diabetes rates well over half. One of the things that, that uh, has been found is that 22 minutes per day of moderate exercise reduces that risk between 60 and 70%, depending on your demographic group. So we can take the, the largest killer of police officers, heart disease, type two diabetes and stroke, and we can reduce those between 60 and 70% by 22 minutes of moderate exercise, riding a bicycle, walking briskly, getting on a treadmill, and yet we don't do that. You know, also, we have been talking about the, the epidemic this past year of suicide in first responders, most particularly in, in police officers. Well, we know that's a function of, of depression, but the research coming out of, out of uh, several universities, Duke University led the, the, led the research, the research came out that 20 minutes of walking on a treadmill every day, walking briskly on a treadmill for 20 minutes a day showed treatment of depression as effectively as being placed on antidepressant medication. So there are some very simple things that, that we can do to help break the cycle of stressfulness in our first responders, which we don't do. I'm often amazed at politicians now who are yelling about reform police. Well, I, I applaud that. I want to reform police because when I work in Australia, I know a police officer, every police officer starts at between eight and nine weeks vacation every year. In the United States, we start with zero vacation and we earn two weeks over the first year. So if we're going to reform it, let's bring it into uh, alignment with how Canadians handle their law enforcement and, and firefighters also. Uh, benefits. Let's, let's talk about the capacity that first responders get sabbaticals. You work for four years as a police officer in Australia, you have the option of taking the fifth year off with full pay. It's self-funding because a certain percentage of salary base is held back and kept in escrow and it funds that, that fifth year of being off. In the United States, our administration of police and firefighters have use it or lose it mindsets. You're only permitted to accrue a certain amount of vacation, then you lose it if you don't take it. Every Australian cop I know takes two months, three months a year off, and they typically travel. And then every so many years, they'll have a large protracted vacation of several months with their family. When we start at treating our police officers in the United States the way the civilized world does, 
then, then we might end up reducing some of the stress casualties that we have that are decimating our ranks. But so when, when people start talking about reforming police, all I hear about is putting restrictions on police. I don't see about bringing their benefits into alignment with what, what, what really needs to take place. You, you actually make me think of when I went to Sweden a few years ago and did stuff with their fire department. Uh, one of the things that was unheard of was their paternity leave was for an entire year. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, so it was just, I'm like, I'm lucky. Initially, my, my first child, I had two weeks. My second one, I was actually able to take six weeks. But I, yes, I would rather have a year to bond, you know, with my sons. So. And, you know, um, and we've improved in that because I'm a generation ahead of you. And um, you might have been able to get the day off when your wife had, had the child. <laughs> that, would be your, that would be your maternity is, leave. <laughs> yeah, this is true. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But, 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 you know, there's a lot of improvement that we, we can invest in and in how we treat our first responders. One of, and again, I'll, I'll, I'll say it again, my frustration is we have locked into only the psychological one. We, we view post-traumatic stress as a psychological concept, and we do critical incident stress debriefings and things like that that are very, very necessary. I'm not in any way taking away from those. We have peer support personnel, very, very necessary. But we, we need to view the, the physical fitness coordinator as one of the most viable players on the stress reduction team. Because first responding is a brotherhood of biochemistry. I know that's a gender biased term, but I, I wrote an article years ago, many years ago, called Brotherhood of Biochemistry. We need to call it Brotherhood and Sisterhood of Biochemistry. I can take a police officer in any state in the United States and transport him to Australia or Canada, and they might know nothing about the terrain or protocols or procedures, but they know what it biologically feels like to step out of a vehicle at one o'clock in the morning on a deserted road and walk up to an unknown event. They know what that physically feels like because it's a shared state of bio, biochemistry, those, those hormonal changes that first responders feel. You'll also hear, you're, you're, you'll many times hear paramedics or cops or dispatchers or firefighters say, this kind of work gets in your blood. Well, they're very accurate, it does. You learn to operate in abnormally stressful situations and you just normalize those. And you start viewing any other job as pretty boring, pretty routine. But going into blood and guts kind of situations, firefighters, cops, paramedics, they perform in those situations where many people would pass out because they physiologically are able to handle those. The problem is that strength operationally is their detriment off duty because they drop into this exhausted state and they ignore all the other relationships in their life. And that's where the fabric of their life comes unraveled. Yeah. One of the, one of the comments you have in your book um, and it, it kind of spoke to me too was, you say this is a career, not a crusade. Yeah, that that piece of wisdom was given to me by a uh, a widow of a federal agent that was was killed, and he had he had that uh, a little saying on his telephone 
because he had seen so many of his colleagues, his coworkers, become obsessed by the job. And you, you'll see this quality in personnel who are first responders. Everything else gets put on the back burner and all interaction revolves around the job. And it's easy to do because it's so demanding the job and personal life becomes so exhausting. It's easy to see it as a crusade. And also we have this, this camaraderie, which when we do socialize, we tend to have you know five or six firefighter families going on a camping trip or, or cop families going on a camping trip together. There's nothing wrong with that. But it, it, as a matter of fact, it's, it's a wonderful uh, event as long as the, it's the family that's the central part, not the fire service or the police department. And many times you'll see folks just sitting around talking about work. I'd rather have them sitting around talking about their fishing or their golf game, because eventually the more emphasis you put on the first responder role, the more you're empowering the person who controls that role. The more you're empowering the politicians, the more you're empowering the police chief, because you're investing all your energy into your police officer role, yet the mayor controls the police officer role. And that's why you'll see police officers right now becoming demoralized and in some cases and, and becoming agitated because they see the bizarre behavior that's taking place with some of the politicians pandering for votes. And they have to be able to handle that stressful situation just the same as they would have to handle a situation of a man with a gun call. They're, they're both stressful events, but they're just, the, the stressor is just different. The body's reaction to it's the same. Yeah. You made me think of another thing from your book. Uh, and, and I realized again, this was so true for my life. You know, before I entered the fire service, I obviously had friends from all over the place. And as I entered the fire service and, you know, put years and decades into it, I realized that, you know, for the most part, my friends now are in the fire service and it's not so much those guys that were there early on and it's not nothing against them at all. They haven't done anything to me at all, but it's me more or less pushing them away because they just don't necessarily understand where I, I can deal with these other people that I work with that do understand things. Well, that, that sort of, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, that, that narrowing of our social contacts to our age cohorts and our experiential cohorts. It's, 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 so, it's natural, but it becomes very much uh, intensified with first responders. It is a, um, you know, we, we in any, in any um, profession that identifies heavily with their title, we also, we identify with the title of firefighter, but then we'll talk about the, the, the new kids don't really understand or the, the rookie cops don't understand. Um, and we, we hang with our age cohorts and we, we give it some latitude. We'll get a, a few young guys in there and a few old guys in there, but we make fun of them. We, we lighthearted joking about it. But where this becomes painful is when the person retires because you'll see a police officer or a firefighter retire and if they do move to another location, now they have to reestablish their entire social 
network of friends and support systems. And it's, many can struggle with this. There's a community up in Idaho, that uh, Sandpoint, Idaho, that's just, uh, it, it is a favorite retiring place for uh, public safety personnel from Southern California. And it's amazing to me that there'll be neighborhoods that are almost exclusively retired cops. And, and then they'll even break it down by their past agencies. And I'm glad that they have that sort of, that support system, that, that collectiveness. But I'll also see many sad cases of people who, who retire from a life of service and they're still young, vibrant people by longevity standards and they uh, just wither on the vine. They socially isolate uh, and they, they don't engage. But I'll also see somebody who's been a, a hardcore cop for 30 years retire, then reinvent themselves. Then the next time you see them, they're, they're doing something entirely different than, um, than uh, police work. I, I, I'm, what, I got derailed a little bit there because two days ago, I went into our local Ace Hardware and the person working at the hardware store had on a shirt that said Tucson Fire. And I said, do you know somebody from the Tucson Fire Department? And he said, I retired from the Tucson Fire Department. I come up here in the summers. And we just sat and visited and, you know, reconnected with old friends. But he has a whole different world up here. His whole social network is entirely different. And I like seeing that. And one of the things is that when and firefighters have always been better at this than cops are because their schedules have been much more humane in many ways. Many times have been broken around 24 hour blocks of time with greater periods of time away from work. Old school firefighters use those blocks of off duty time to work and supplement their income by working in the trades. They laid tile, they did electrical work, they did concrete work. And that, that was a psychological blessing because it gave them a second identifier in life. One that they could use actually as a second area of employment after retirement from the fire service. It seems, however, that younger firefighters are moving away from the trades and supplementing their income by working additional overtime shifts, which is the trap that cops have always been in. There's a 40 hour work week and the cop will stick an extra 20 hours on top of that. So the vast majority of their waking days is spent in the cop role. And the firefighters always had that insulation of having the, the trades and, and the off-duty work in another area as giving them an insulation to stress. I, I can even see on my department where the younger firefighters are not wanting to do overtime. They don't have a side job like you were alluding to. Uh, they basically clock in 24 hours, clock out, and you'll see them again, you know, 48 hours later. And, you know, it's funny. Old school cops and firefighters complain about the millennials. And I look at the millennials and say, well, there's a lot of things that they do that that you question, but the one thing that I that I like about the millennials is they do not emotionally overinvest in their roles. When they're on duty, they're on duty. When they're off duty, they're off duty. 
and they are very interested in their mountain biking and very interested in, in their social networking. Uh, the drawback is that if we don't educate them on the physiology of hypervigilance, their body will react just the same as a baby boomer's or a Gen Xer's body would react. You have high sympathetic autonomic arousal, you'll get a parasympathetic homeostatic response afterwards, dropping into that depressive state. But by and large, you'll, you'll see the millennial has better boundaries to work. I often will teach leadership classes and I'll have chiefs of police complain about them. Let's say these guys just show up and they do their job and they go home. They're more worried about their family and their personal time. They don't even want to work overtime. Boy, when I was a young cop, we would kill for overtime. And I always joke and say, yeah, I bet your, I bet your first four ex-wives thought that was just wonderful too, didn't they? But, but, but so I'm hopeful for, that that boundary will make it a little easier for the millennial through their career. But they're also getting dealt with some this, this tremendous social upheaval right now, which is accusing the cops of everything, every ill that has ever happened in the United States is always the, the cops' fault. Whereas if there's any rational discussion, particularly rational discussion in communities of color, they'll see that the police have actually been the agent of the reduction of violence and the reduction of victimization. There was one study done in New York back maybe 15 years ago that found 77% of African-American residents of Harlem said the New York Police Department was making their life safer and the lives of their children safer. Now, that flies directly in the face of, of the, the media propaganda that's bombarding and, and fueling the anti-cop protests today. Because the people that basically the ground level who live in the public housing know that when the cops are here, the drug dealing gangsters are not. And their children will be safer. But that, that's not the narrative that's getting pushed out. But one of the things that happens is the young cop has to live through this and still be able to maintain their life and, and not have this stressful confrontation, just destroy them off duty. Mm. Very good. Um, I'd like to switch it up and kind of start going home. If you're okay with that, you still have a few more minutes. Sure. Sure. I have plenty of time. I've got, uh, I've got this thing called uh, the 25 questions and it's not that I'm going to ask you 25 questions. That would probably be rude, but what I will do is I've got this list and I'll just have you pick out a few of them. And these are all just more random questions and they're more fun than anything. Okay. Hopefully more fun. <laughs> so if you will, how about throw a number out between one and 25? 17. All right. Who is your favorite actor or actress? Oh, seven. Oh, let me think. Let me think. I can picture him, but I can't think of his name right now. Oh, my God. Um, let's go with another one. I'll come back to that guy's name. I picture him. I watch his movies, but I'm blocking on his name. Uh, he has a common name. Oh, my God. They're making me crazy here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See, I stumped him on these questions. If I was a child, if I was a child, I'd say John Wayne, but I can't say that today. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> pick another number then. 11. <laughs> it's another movie question, but who would play you in a movie regarding your life? Oh my God. I don't know. Oh, oh God. 
I I am so not movie oriented. I can't I can't uh, you know everybody would probably want to throw out some uh, you know Harrison Ford type character, but I don't know. It, it, uh, Bob Newhart. I think he would be people he played a wonderful psychologist back back in the back in oh, the yeah. day. Yeah, uh, but uh, I, I you know that's um, you know gosh. I, I don't have an answer to that. Let's, let's not get a right. movie question. You, you, pop, you know, pop, I watch, pop, I watch pop culture. No pop culture is not, <laughs> you can do everything else regarding your book and police and well, my fire. Pop, yeah, pop culture. I thought you were going to ask you what my favorite, you know, fly is or something <laughs> when I'm fishing. <laughs> well, no, I can ask that. What is it? Well, that's, that's anything, number. That's that's actually question number twenty-six. Okay, anything top water, anything that sits on the top, anything. That's a nice dry fly that sits up on top, and you can watch it explode when the, when the fish hits it. Yeah, I, I kayaked down the uh, the Deschutes River last night with my wife, and uh, right at sunset, we did about a three-mile kayak. Uh, nothing hit, though, but it's just watching that fly float across the top of the water, knowing at any second it's going to just blow up with a big brown on the end of it. Um, so, uh, yeah, dry fly fishing. All right, now we won't do any more movie. We won't do any more movie yeah. questions, and I'll, I'll I'll pick some softball ones out for you. Okay? Yeah, I do, do. I'm not a I'm not a movie guy at all. Uh, Chicago or New York pizza? Well, I'm a, I'm a New York guy over Chicago it, for just about anything. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's the Knicks playing the Bulls or the Bears playing the Giants. I'm going to take New York. So, uh, you know, I'm, it has to be New York. All right. What about, what was your first job? My first real job, you know, as a kid, I was a newspaper delivery boy and uh, worked, uh, you know, at an ice cream parlor. But my first real job was I was a janitor for the Greyhound bus company um, on the midnight shift. I would show up at 11 o'clock each night at the bus station, miserable place. And I would be the janitor until uh, seven o'clock in the morning. And uh, it was a great job because if I got there, I could hit it and be done in about an hour. And then I had six hours to do my homework for school. I was at the university. I'd jump on my motorcycle and I'd race off to my classes at the University of Arizona. It was a great job. It was a union job actually and as a janitor, and it, it paid twice what going to work at the, the, at the law enforcement paid. I took a 50% pay cut uh, to, to enter law enforcement from that job. Wow. And, uh, but what happened has happened to so many jobs, it, uh, the, it stopped being a union job and got a subcontracted job and became a minimum wage job right after I had left. So. Those were kind of my golden work years, working as a, as a janitor at the Greyhound Bus Company. And people say, that must have been a terrible job. I said, no, it was the best job I ever had. <laughs> and uh, it was, didn't worry at all about, about the bus station when I was off duty. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I, I didn't have any tattoos that say, leave the driving to us, or didn't, didn't collect the urinal brushes off duty. It was just a, just a job. <laughs> I showed up, did it, and they paid me a god-awful amount of money, and I went home. <laughs> it was the best job I ever had. Nice, nice. All right, last one for you. 
Uh, do you have a special place you like to visit regularly? Yeah, I do. I, I have a couple of them. Um, there, uh, one is a mountaintop in Arizona that I've I've climbed uh, fairly regularly since I'm since I'm a young kid. Uh, I've I've had three or four places. One is a hike in Grand Canyon that I've done through the stages of my life. I think that would be my number one. There's a vista that I can hike. It's about a six mile hike to an overview and you can look down at the Colorado River well below you in the Grand Canyon. And um, I, 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 this is important to me because I hiked it as a, about a 10 year old boy and I was leaning over and I moved my head back and I hit my head and I put a big gash on it and it was bleeding. And I went back many years later, I was in my 50s, went to the same place, looked over, stood back up, hit the same rock and was bleeding again. And everybody, I started laughing and, and people said, why are you laughing? Your head's bleeding. I said, because I hit that same rock, you know, 40 years ago <laughs> and just about the same spot in my head. It just shows that things like the Grand Canyon are constants and, and you're just a traveler through it for a little speck of time. So, yeah, I, I would think any of, the, any of the majestic parts of the Southwest, the mountains of the White Mountains, the Grand Canyon, or like, like you, we had talked about Sedona before you started uh, recording. You know, those are all special places. Absolutely. That's, that's my favorite place. I'm mm, looking forward absolutely. to being out there here in a few weeks. Yeah, some wonderful hikes up West Oak Creek and places you should take when you're there. Devil, Devil's Bridge, uh, Bell Rock, I mean, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, oh yeah, good yeah. stuff. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Um, you've also got, you know, this, this book you have here that I read was actually first written in 2002. Yes. But you've, yeah. you've, got a, you've got a new one that you've been working on as well. Could you kind of touch on that, please? Well, our, rever our revised version of that book, um, we've revised it a couple of times in the past, but um, it touches more on the issues of health, of diabetes, heart disease with, with our first responders. So it takes everything that's in the first book and it adds the physiological component to health. So that, and we revise it. We, we um, see way too many, way too many brother and sister first responders die before their time. They work for a quarter century or more of their life serving others. Then they retire in their 50s when they should have decades of their life left to live and enjoy their life and, and they die. They, they die of diseases of adaptation. A disease of adaptation occurs when your body has to go into this elevated state every day. And eventually the body adapts to that and it, and it eventually creates syndromes like we mentioned before, sleep disorder, uh, obesity, um, type two diabetes. And, and these are all, the, in, the, in the, the new book, we, ad we address these and our goal is to have cops and firefighters work and serve others, then have their encore life. Life is pretty much broken into thirds. Our first third is our developmental phase of our life, our childhood, our schooling, and the choice of our profession. Then the middle third is our, our work years, what we do, our profession. The years you're a firefighter, the years you're a police officer. And the last third is the encore third. That's where you get to do the things you've wanted to do 
your whole life and you've put off because of the demands of the job. It's that last third that our first responders are losing. It, they're, they're dying prematurely. And one study found police officers surrender 19 years of life expectancy. That's not acceptable to me. I, I want them to harness those years. I, I like seeing 80-year-old retired firefighters, 80-year-old retired cops riding their bikes and, and long-distance bike rides or, or running marathons and, and backpacking and playing golf. And, and in order to do that, you, you can't just wait until you retire. You, you have to be laying down the foundation of wellness and stress reduction throughout the work years. And that's what the, 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 the new book adds, because the goal is we want you to be able to harness and benefit from those, those 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And those are the ones that our first responders are surrendering and we're losing them to premature death syndromes. I always talk about when, when I'm preaching to the recruits, you know, what's the point of putting in your 25 or 30 years for you to not enjoy your retirement? Cause that's usually when we get our cancer diagnoses. So, um, you know, what's the point? And so just, just like you said, I want, I want you to be able to enjoy your retirement, enjoy being with your family, with your grandkids, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And you know, the fire service has taken cancer on. I mean, they're, they're, they're looking at cancer, they're fighting it. They're trying to prevent all of the, 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 the precursors to it and, and to prevent the, the syndromes from developing, uh, the, the police departments, however, are not. They, they look with a blind eye towards obesity. They look at a blind eye towards sleep disorder and they, they act as if it's, it's just normal and they joke about it. You know, no one jokes about cancer, but they shouldn't joke about type two diabetes either or heart disease. And when, when you look at, at both of these professions, they talk about presumptive diseases cancer, heart disease, uh, stroke. These are presumptive injuries. They'll be compensated by, uh, they're, they're caused by the job. Well, we know that, but the old, the old adage, if it's predictable, it's preventable. If we can predict that these professions are going to have these diseases, then we damn well can prevent them from happening. But we have to look at them aggressively and find out what's actually occurring here. With something as simple as 22 minutes a day of exercise, we can knock 70% of our heart disease and diabetes down. Well, then we need to invest on duty being mandated that a half hour of physical fitness is mandated every day for police officers. I know firefighters have taken physical fitness to a very different level than police officers do because the demands of the job can be more physical. But when we can start having prevention, that, that's when we'll start maintaining the life and letting our older firefighter and our older police officer enjoy those years of their life that they've earned. And to, to this point, we're not. And so that's, that's you know, with the, the revision of the book, it had a lot, we're trying to prevent some of these premature death syndromes from occurring. When, when do you uh, best guess on when that book will actually come out? Well, you know, I would imagine it's already done. It's in the can, and it is uh, through the editor now, and it's going through typesetting and stuff. So I would imagine by fall that would be in, in the marketplace. Perfect. Where can uh, individuals find your current book right now if they wanted to? Um, 
well, I, I think the easiest thing is just Google, Google emotional survival for law enforcement. And uh, it's sold by a lot of booksellers on Amazon. Um, we were shocked to find out that that, because we've never marketed that book. We were shocked to find out that that book was in, uh, in one, of the, one of the top books that Amazon sells. I was astounded to, to hear that. Um, that it sold 3 million copies. And that was just shocking to me um, because we've never marketed it. It's been by word of mouth. I, and I like to I like to joke and say it's, it's not a well-written book because I wrote it and I'm not a good writer. I'm from Arizona where literacy is optional, but the, um, apparently it has legs because we're giving them some, we're giving them some, some information that the first responders relate to. I, I will say this. The criticism we get is that it's called emotional survival for law enforcement. And we stuck with that title. I wish way back in the day we had called it emotional survival for first responders. But we stuck with the title and we asked firefighters to, like you said, just envision the word firefighter wherever it says cop. And we try to be more... Uh, broad base, but again, the, the laser approach to, to the policing was, was, was our initial goal, and the firefighters got on board with it. But we're, we're really, we, really hope, we really hope that it's helpful to them. No, absolutely. So it's a great read, and you could tell, I mean, you, you know, you're talking about it wasn't written well. No, I, I won't say that, but I, I will say that it was written by one of us, and it comes off that way. So uh, again, like when I read it, it was like, yep, uh, that sounds like me. Sounds like me. Yep. Check that box too. Uh, you know, throughout really the whole book. Well, I'll get criticized about the book by psychologists. They'll say, well, you know, you didn't use American Psychological Association formatting. And I'll say, you know, I didn't write this book for a bunch of shrinks to sit down and read and uh, discuss. I wrote it for a, a bunch of men and women who, who, who put their life on the line when they go to work, for firefighters, for cops, for EMS, for 911 types. And, and, and I've wrote it in a language that hopefully they relate with. Uh, yeah, you, you, know your, you know your audience and it, and it comes off that way. Absolutely. Well, thank you. That was our goal. That, that was our goal. It wasn't, it, it, that's, that's the manner in which my brain operates. You know, I have to translate it from that to the psychologist's part. But the, my first love is the first responder who just happens to have an advanced degree in uh, psychology. So it's, um, it's not reverse. I'm not a psychologist trying to relate to uh, first responders. It's, uh, but um, we're, we're hoping that it's helpful and helps them and their families. That's our goal. All right. Last thing, where, if anybody wanted to talk to you, where would they contact you at? Well, if you just type my name, Kevin Gilmartin, um, in, in any search engine, the contact information comes up. And uh, there's, there's two Kevin Gilmartins. There's two Dr. Kevin Gilmartins out there. One is a professor of romantic literature at Caltech. So Ooh. if you get him, you got the wrong guy. So That's uh, actually who I was looking for. Yeah, there you go. There you go. He'll, he'll talk about Byron's uh, on the lake thesis or something. But, uh, but no, we're pretty, we're pretty approachable in the sense that, uh, you know, you just write Kevin Gilmartin, emotional survival, and you'll get more, more hits than you probably wish you were getting. So yeah, just, just drop us an email or, or get on our website, emotionalsurvival.com. And, uh, you know, if you got a question, we'd love to, we'd love to interact with you. 
All right. Well, thanks, Doc, for your time. I really do appreciate you, taking the time for this and, and writing, you know, this book and then writing the new book. And I mean, it's just absolutely great stuff and, and helps well, out. Thank you. And, and it th- helps thank out you. all of us. Uh, thank you for what you and your brother and sister firefighters and police officers are doing. I mean, they, though, they, they keep the rest of us safe, despite what all the idiots in the media are saying, that you're the good guys. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Well, on that note, I'll let you get out of here. Uh, for all my listeners, don't forget to subscribe, leave a comment, share, and uh, I'll listen to you all. Or you can listen to me next week. Take care. Take care. Be safe. <laughs>